know a lot about that, but it can't be much fun that Rome, a superpower, is over Israel at that time. And understandably, many of the Jews resented Rome, just as you and I would resent it if some conquering country came in here and took us over and made us fly their flag and told us we had to follow their rules. We would resent that. And the Israelites are resentful of the presence of Rome. The political and the religious scene then is one of unease. It is percolating discontentment, suspicion, and nationalism. Riots and uprisings are common. So common that in not too far from this time, Rome is going to come in and devastate Jerusalem, but that's a story for another day. Just know this, that this is not really a safe, happy city to be in. Jerusalem is latent with angry people who are looking for an excuse to be violent, uh, who are very sensitive to foreign imposition of any sort, whether that be the occupying forces that rule them or, as we see in our passage this morning from Acts 21, a Gentile-loving apostle who they perceive as a threat, both to their religion and to their way of life. So as Paul comes to the holy city, Luke relates to us a tale of two receptions. Father, as we come before your word, we seek to do so humbly. We ask that you would help us to learn from it, to hear your voice in it, to take away from it what, what we ought to be taking away from it, we pray for your Holy Spirit to uh, illumine us as we seek your wisdom in Christ's name. Amen. So two receptions. And the first reception, obviously, is a friendly re reception. Uh, Paul and his companions are received gladly, Luke tells us, by the brothers in Jerusalem. He goes to meet with James, James, a half-brother of Jesus, a pillar of the church there. And he goes to meet with the elders of the church as well. And he shares with them all that God has been doing through his ministry uh, amongst the Gentiles. And his testimony is met, uh, the scripture tells us, with rejoicing. The Bible commands us, you're probably familiar with this, Romans 12, verse 15. The Bible commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice. It also tells us to weep with those who weep in that same verse. And sometimes it's easier to weep with those who weep, to, to, to identify with brokenhearted, than it is to actually be happy for those people who are rejoicing. Why is that, do you suppose? Sometimes we struggle to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because we look upon them in their good fortune and we look upon them in their prosperity. And it's not, we're not going to be proud of this, but a little bit of envy creeps in there. A little bit of jealousy makes its way in there. And we look at them and we should be happy for them, but there's something inside of us that says, how come it's not me? How come this good thing's not happening to me? How come I don't get blessed this way? We can go there, can't we? You would admit that. That's why the scripture gives us the command, rejoice with those who rejoice, which is basically saying get over yourself and be happy for people who are experiencing good things. And that's what the elders do here in Jerusalem. They are rejoicing over what God is doing in a ministry, even though it's not a ministry that they have or a ministry that they necessarily share. It's just Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Sometimes even news of another ministry's success can spark jealousy. 
or bitterness or criticism or questioning of means and motives. Even in, in, in Christian circles, when, when another ministry, another church in another place is doing well, there can be just a natural tendency for us to go, how come that's not happening in my church? How come this is prospering over here? We're working hard. We're faithful. We're devoted to God. These are places, guys. These are places we're not supposed to go. Okay? I would encourage you this. Don't be that kind of person. And let's not be that kind of church. Because if the word of God is being preached, if the gospel is being preached, and, and these churches and ministries are faithful to that, and sinners are getting saved, and people's lives are being changed. That is just plain and simple, a cause of rejoicing. We should be happy about that, amen? We, we have been and will be a church that prays for other churches and other ministries in our area, in our region, because we value the kingdom of God. Not, not just the part of the kingdom that happens in these four walls, but the whole of it. And so when God is glorified, when God is glorified through other people, we rejoice. That's just what these elders do for Paul. It is a beautiful, glad reception of Paul and his ministry. And while they're talking about all these good things, after Paul has offered his report, they offer their report as well. Since Paul has left, and it's been a long time now, and especially since the day of Pentecost, the Jerusalem Christians in the city have continued to increase. And there are many thousands of them. And being Jewish, they still want to follow the law. Not as a means of salvation. I'm going to clear that up as we get a little deeper into the passage. Not as a means of salvation, which was the old way of understanding it, but, but the traditions or the customs. Salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we all know that. that. That hasn't changed. Paul's not balking off of that. Neither is the Jerusalem church. But there are customs that are being lived out. There are practices that are happening, and they want to continue to do that. So James brings this up kind of as an alert to Paul about a rumor that has been circulating about him, rumor being a nice way of saying a lie. People are lying about the Apostle Paul. Now, don't be shocked that a servant of God would be lied about. That's, that should not stretch your imagination at all. Not at all. That you, in your efforts to be faithful and true, to bear witness to the gospel, that you would be maligned and lied about should not be a stretch to your imagination. It should not come as a surprise. Why is it that we should expect to be lied about or mischaracterized? Well, first of all, we have an enemy known as the devil who's also called what? The father of lies. The author of lies. He, this enemy lives and, and breathes to inspire untruth. When Jesus was talking with the religious elites, we find this in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44. He said to them, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. Did you catch that? And no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar 
and the father of lies. Our enemy is a liar. The enemy of our souls is a liar, and therefore everyone who is of him, whether they are consciously of him or not, because Jesus said that if you're not for me, what? You're against me. So everyone who's not for Jesus is of their father, the devil, in an unsaved state. Everybody who's not of him is going to be spreading lies. We are not of the devil, and so we are the targets of those lies. Not by anything that we have done, but by Christ in us. We are saved, and we are now a target for the enemy who likes to lie about us. We shouldn't be surprised either because our Lord himself was lied about. Jesus lived a sinless life, a perfect life. He never failed once. He, 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 he never sinned. So the only way that he could be crucified was for charges to be brought against him, false charges brought against him. And he tells us that as the world hated him, the world is going to hate his people. And that as the world persecuted him, the world is going to persecute his people. In his commentary on Acts, Tony Marita notes this. He says, many Christians have been and will continue to be victims of hostility and lies. Early Christians were accused of incest, cannibalism, and atheism simply because they greeted one another with a holy kiss, took the Lord's Supper, and refused to worship the emperor. Today, we are accused of immorality and bigotry because of our views on marriage and life. Brothers and sisters, if you intend to stand firm for your faith, and I hope you do, if you intend to defend your beliefs, and I hope you do, then you may very well be lied about. You may be mischaracterized. You may be falsely accused. You may even be unjustly, and it's easy to do this now, to be unjustly tried in the court of public opinion. That's just what happened to the Apostle Paul, and that's his second reception. Hostile. The first reception, friendly. The second reception, hostile. So what is everyone all up in arms about? We find it in uh, verse 21 of chapter 21. The accusation against Paul is found here. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So like any good fib, there's going to be an element of truth to what is being said. Every good lie has to have some little, some little element, a nugget of truth, in order to hook you to make you even think that it could possibly be true. And that's what's happening here. An element of truth to what is being said, though it's not truthful, enough at least to require a conversation. Like if Paul could meet with these people and talk with these people, he could say, I understand why you think what you think. I understand where you get what you, what you got going on, but let me explain to you what really I am saying and what I am teaching and what I'm trying to get across. There's an element of truth here. Paul has certainly preached that salvation does not come from following the Mosaic law. And that could be interpreted as some sort of blasphemy. But Paul was not opposed to tradition. Paul was not opposed to rituals. He himself was willing, we read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he himself is willing for the sake of the gospel to be all things to all peoples. You remember that passage? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 to 23. 
3, he says this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. You see why this required a conversation and some explanation? To the weak, he says, I've become weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might win some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them its blessings. So the conflict in our text this morning is not over the means of salvation or what salvation entails. There's no question that salvation is through Christ alone, but it's really about cultural practices. It's about the observance of customs. And Christian liberty gives us a lot of latitude when it comes to customs and practices and rituals. As long as it's not sin, as long as it doesn't compromise the gospel. There's a lot of latitude here. Paul did not object to the Jewish converts following Jewish customs. Again, as long as it didn't lead them into sin, as long as it didn't compromise the message that salvation is in Christ alone, the good news of the gospel. And Paul didn't really want anybody, and we know this from Galatians and other passages, we know that Paul didn't want the law imposed on the Gentiles. And that issue was already squared away back in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council. So we've covered all this. Paul's not opposed to tradition or to customs, That's not what's being, uh, but that is not what is being said about him. It's the opposite. They're saying that he is. His teaching is being misrepresented. And so to clear that up, James suggests that Paul should undergo, uh, publicly engage in a, a Jewish ritual of purification along with several others who were going through something similar to that. And the specifics of that I'm not going to get into, mostly because while the intention here was a good one to show that Paul's not against or even willing to participate in Jewish rites, the outcome had the opposite effect. So I'm not going to explain to you the different rituals and whatnot happening in the book of Numbers or Leviticus or any place like that, only to say, and by the way, it didn't work. Okay? The reason that what James wanted to happen didn't happen, as you've heard me say before, is that some people are just not going to be confused by the facts. Let that sink in. Some people are not going to allow themselves to be confused by the facts. Okay, you're not getting it. <laughs> you have done this. You have, I'm sure you have encountered this, and I'm going to guess that no doubt you have probably been guilty of it yourselves, and this is what I'm talking about. When your mind is made up, when you want to believe something, and you're going to believe it, no matter who says what, no matter what evidence is raised to the contrary, you are steadfast and you will not be moved. This is the way it is. Don't confuse me with any information that would make me think different than what I'm thinking right now. That's what's happening. These Jewish Christians have to believe for some reason that the Apostle Paul is trying to tear them apart. They, they are living, as we noted earlier, with a great mix of bitterness in their hearts. They, are, they love their country and they're sad about what's happening to it. They resent the foreigners that are there. And with all this 
stuff pumping through their veins. They're not about to put up with some Gentile loving former Jew who they think is making a mockery of their religion and, and posing a threat to their treasured way of life. Verses 27 to 29, when the seven days were almost accomplished, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is a man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled those, this holy place. For they had seen him with Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed. You know a telltale sign that um, someone is not speaking the truth is often the, the use of exclusive language. All, always, never. Do you ever catch yourself doing that in an argument? It's not helpful, is it? When you look at your spouse and say, you never... Or you always, because the reality is none of us humans are ever consistent enough to say that we always or never do anything. It's just not how we are. So th there's the exclusive language here that he's, Paul is teaching all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's not true. For crying out loud, if you read back a little while, I'd say in chapter 16, Paul was willing for the sake of ministry Chapter 16, to compel Timothy, a Gentile follower of Jesus, to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised. You remember that? Doesn't say anything in there about how Timothy felt about it at all. But Paul was willing to say, so that, so that we don't have a stumbling block in ministry, Timothy, I want you to take this measure. Paul himself in Acts chapter 18 is under a vow. He's certainly not teaching all the Jews to forsake Moses. And in today's passage, he'd not been teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Why would he submit to what the elders in Jerusalem are telling him to do if he didn't have regard for those things? He did. So he was willing to submit. But... The powder keg of religious and political volatility is primed, and false accusers provide the spark, and the thing blows up, and the scene immediately turns violent. Paul is seized by the mob. He is dragged out of the temple. The doors of it are shut, shut behind him. There will be no gospel in this temple, and they proceed to beat him. They proceed to beat him. But word of it spread quickly. Uh, as I said before, this was already a city, an uneasy city, where these things started frequently and happened often. And so the, the tribune and the centurion and the soldiers are on top of it. And they rush to the scene. And as soon as they show up, because they show up with a great uh, show of power, the people sort of back off. The Roman soldiers and centurions saved Paul's life here. And then the evidence of the ignorance of the crowd becomes obvious that they are in fact bloodthirsty because they're bloodthirsty. They're bloodthirsty because they're bloodthirsty. They're not bloodthirsty because of some righteous reason. Because people are bloodthirsty because humans can be incredibly cruel. 
because people still believe that the way to get rid of those who oppose you is to cancel them, to harm them, or to kill them. Because that is in the heart of man. That's what's happening here. Their ignorance of what's going on is exposed because when the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound, he asked. He asked about it. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. It reminds us sort of that scene at Ephesus that was crazy and people didn't even know why they had gathered or some of the riots that we see on the news where people just see all kinds of bad stuff going and just join in. They don't even know why. Are they celebrating a Super Bowl victory or are they celebrating a shooting? Nobody knows what's going on and if you poll half of them there they wouldn't be able to tell you because that's how people are. They're just ginned up people. Acts 21, 33 to 34, then the tribune came up and arrested Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains. You would remember from last week that Agabus prophesied that Paul would be bound. Here he is chained. And some would say hand and foot, and others will say uh, between two soldiers. We cannot know for sure, but what we can know is this. Paul is in chains. And that may not sound too profound to you, but what that means is that exactly what the Holy Spirit told him was going to happen, happened. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't lie. God cannot lie. Paul knew this was going to happen, and he went anyway. We'll get to that in just a second. Paul is bound. And the tribune inquired about him, who he was, what he had done. And because the mob was so great and so violent, they had to take him back to the barracks. So enraged was the mob against Paul, the soldiers for his safety had to carry him up the stairs. As they did, the crowd shouted away with him. Ben Witherington, in his commentary on Acts, says this. He says, the cry means more than send him away. It means do away with him. Away with him doesn't mean just send him away. It means do away with him. That sound familiar? Because that's just what the crowd said of Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 15. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. We've said it a few times already. Paul is indeed following the footsteps of his Lord, isn't he? And he is all the more being made in Christ's image. He is following the footsteps of his Lord. And as we noted last week, sometimes following Jesus leads you into some difficult places. Hard places. Places you wouldn't choose. Places you'd rather not go or be. Sometimes following Jesus, that is, that is what it means. I almost started this sermon by saying, I'm so grateful that if you do everything right, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. Because that's kind of one of the principles that we live on. If we do all the right things, then nothing bad is going to happen to us. Bad, at least from our own perspective, as in bad. And that is not the witness of Scripture, is it? God is faithful and God is good. He doesn't say he's not going to let you go through the valleys. He says he's going to go there with you. He doesn't say he's going to preserve you from all harm. He's going to preserve you in it and through it. And ultimately, he's going to preserve you eternally. That's what the Scripture teaches. From now to the end of this book of Acts, Paul 
will be a prisoner. He's going to be a, he's a prisoner. That's really what this whole story is about. When you deal with historical narrative, you've got to be asking, what's the author want us to know? You know what Luke wants us to know? This is how Paul got in the pokey. This is how he became a prisoner. And he's going to be a prisoner now for a good long time. And he's going to face more and more accusations. And he's going to give more and more defenses. And really, that's what this passage is about. Helping us understand how Paul got to where Paul is as we continue to read the story. Which makes it sort of think, well, okay, it's historical narrative, then it probably isn't relevant or there's nothing in here for me. And I want, to, I want us to end on this note and say, I do think there is a bit of a takeaway in here for us from this bit of history that Luke has written. And it is, it is somewhat of a simple one, and it has already been stated. I want to st state it again, and that's this. Christians should expect opposition. Christians should expect opposition. Some of you have been around so long that I'm not sure I can convince you that this is going to happen. <laughs> but I, I will say this. When that teaching was first shared with me, I, I wasn't, I was maybe 13 years old. You're looking 45 years ago. Growing up in church and reading some of this stuff about the end times and what we could expect. And I'll tell you, when I, that was shared with me when I was younger, I couldn't envision it. I could not get my head around it. I had no category whatsoever in which to picture a day or an age where the majority of people would be hostile to Christianity, would, would oppose faith and faith initiatives. I could not think about it. Any of you been there? Have any of you struggled with that? That was the way it was then. And I'm not advocating that we stand here and mope or scream at the darkness or anything like that. But I just think we need to be wise enough to take a look around and say, things have changed. And things are changing. They continue to change. Christians can expect opposition. When I used to read Jesus' words about the end of the age and the great persecution of believers, again, really? Children are going to deliver their parents? Parents, their children, really? I can't imagine that, a society turning its children against its parents. Well, I couldn't then, but I can now. I mean, I've got to be careful because I really want to go on a little uh, tirade here. <laughs> but we just did a baby dedication. We are supposed to raise our children. We are supposed to raise them. We are supposed to nurture them. We are supposed to, uh, to teach them in the, in the faith and the admonition, the instruction of the Lord. We're supposed to do that. And we've got a culture now who wants us just as parents to take one more spot of people who look after them. We're not babysitters of our own children. See, I want to go. I'm not going. I, 
I couldn't imagine that back then, but I can see it now. That's, that's just my point. Is don't, let's not be unwise to this. Let's understand what is happening. Let's not be in denial of what's happening. Don't have to panic about it. Don't have to worry about it even. God is in control. But see what is going on. Paul said and he promised that in the last days, treacherous times will come. Difficult times will come. And then he gives this whole long list of, of, of qualifiers. People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, lovers of self. Children will, be, will, will hate their parents. He goes on and on to describe all this stuff. I think it's 2 Timothy 3. Treacherous times will come. I was so naive when I first heard about this stuff that I couldn't even fathom that it could be true. How could it be true that whole churches, whole churches will change their doctrine and heap unto themselves teachers who will only tickle their ears, who won't preach the truth of the word, who won't stand firm for God's word? I couldn't, how could that happen? And yet in just a short period, relatively short period of time, are we not watching the demise of the greatest denominations we've ever known? Aren't we seeing it? We are living in this age. Jonathan Edwards would roll in his grave if he was in it. You know? To see what has happened to the Congregationalists or the Methodists, or the Anglicans, or the Presbyterians, or the Episcopalians, and now you're out there sitting, is he going to say Baptist and the Baptists? <laughs> of course I am, because it's all of us. This is what we're up against. This is the spirit of delusion. This is the spirit of the age in which we live. I thought when I read all that stuff and heard all that stuff when I was younger, this must be for another generation. And to be honest with you, I was quite content with that. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. I don't have to go through that. And now I'm looking and I'm going, I'm not sure that's for another generation. Not to inspire fear. Please don't get me wrong. Not at all. God is in control. But to know what's going on, I don't think it is for another generation. I think it is for this generation and definitely for generations to come. However, the Lord tarries. But my thing is this. Are you ready for any of this? Because we can just toss it out there to theologically in some lofty theoretical way. Yes, you should expect opposition. But really, what's going to happen when it comes to your doorstep? What's going to happen when it comes into your life? What is going to happen when you pay a price for being a Christian in your workplace, in your school? How will you respond to that? And so that, to me, is a bit of the takeaway here. How did Paul respond? Well, he knew what he was going into. And he went in anyway. Why? Because the Holy Spirit told him, be obedient, be faithful, and go here. And I think we have similar marching orders, don't we? I mean, he was kind enough to write those marching orders to us in the book of Ephesians, which say, stand firm. Stand firm. When temptation comes, when trials come, when opposition comes, and persecution comes, we are called by God to stand firm. We've been told what to expect. It's not for somebody else. It's for us. How will we react? How will we, we react when it becomes truly costly to follow Jesus? So let me posit this and then we'll be done. To a degree, 
I think the answer of how we will live in those tumultuous times, in those treacherous times, which appear to be coming on, how we will live in those times depends on how we're living now. So let me put it this way. Are we faithful in worshiping now? Are we offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God now? Are we speaking up for the Christian faith now? Are we raising our children to live for the glory of God now? Are we unashamed of being called Christian now? Are we refusing to compromise the truth now? If we're not doing these things when the cost is still relatively low, what are the odds that we will do them when the cost is high? Or, in the case of the Apostle Paul, imprisonment and even death. I am so impressed by Luke's account of Paul's faithfulness, of Paul's consistency, of Paul's perseverance, of Paul's determination. He stayed true to his beliefs and to his Lord. He stood firm in the face of hostility and lies. And like Jesus, he loved, he loved, he loved to the very end. Beloved, we should prepare now to do the same. I'll leave you with a word of encouragement from Tony Morita. When we say, how on earth are we ever going to do this? Listen to this. When falsely accused and persecuted, remember that the suffering servant is with you. Remember that the suffering servant is with you. He has been tried in every respect, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He understands what it's like to be you. He knows what, he, what you are going through, and he is with you. Marita says, Jesus stands ready to grant you grace in time of need, and he will have the last word. Amen. Let's stand and sing number 100.